0: Welcome to JCCT Pulse. This is a podcast that brings you an overview of the most recent issue of the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography and in depth conversations with the article authors. In each episode, we will go over a few hand picked articles to keep you up to date with the latest in cardiovascular CT. I'm your host, Dr. Kavita Chanayan from Beaumont Health in Royal Oak, Michigan. Welcome back to JCCT Pulse, and again, I have the distinct honor of having Dr. Todd Velines, who is the Editor-in-Chief of JCCT, joining us here on JCCT Pulse to discuss
1: the current issue. Welcome, Todd. Well, thank you so much, Kavitha. It's really a pleasure to be with you today.
0: Yes. So tell us what's happening in this latest issue of JCCT.
1: Well, I'm very excited to introduce the July-August 2020 issue of the JCCT. and this is a, I think the editors are very proud of this issue. One of the highlights of the issue is we start with a special article regarding the recommendations for how to use cardiac CT for congenital heart disease patients during the COVID pandemic. So this is written by a, really a great group with expertise in both adult and child congenital heart diseases and how do you navigate through this period of time and and what procedures perhaps can be deferred safely and what others cannot. And so this is, I think, a really nice timely article. There are two important reviews that cover myocardial perfusion stress testing. There's a review discussing the data and specifics regarding static CT perfusion, and that is followed immediately by a really high-quality review article describing dynamic CT myocardial perfusion. So each of those dig a little bit deeper and really complement the recent SCCT expert consensus statement on the the use of myocardial perfusion imaging with CT. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got a really great lineup of research articles. Um, I won't highlight all of them. I would encourage all the readers to go see them, but a really nice paper looking at the relationship of aortic valve calcification with regards to complications as well as outcomes after transcatheter aortic valve replacement we have a really interesting article that looks at the use of fractional myocardial mass, essentially looking at the mass of myocardium at risk, and how does that really compare with standard angiographic scoring systems to predict myocardial ischemia with using FFR. An interesting article looks at just contrast timing, you know, it's a real challenge clinically to how do you deliver contrast to image a Fontan circuit. And so it's a really interesting paper that attempts to provide some really useful practical information. For 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 those of our readers and listeners who are doing CT in Fontan patients, titled Contrast Circulation in Adult Fontan Patients Using MR Time Resolved Angiography and how that could be used for CT angiography. Oh, that's
0: fantastic.
1: Yeah. So I think that'll be a real practical, helpful article as people do that type of imaging um, more and more frequently. Um, and then lastly, I'll just highlight a couple more of the, I think, more interesting articles and important articles. I, I'd advise all of you to open and read. This a really high-quality issue. There is a, a paper that looks at the myocardial extracellular volume fraction in patients with heart failure using iodine MAP and a rapid KV-switching dual-energy CT and compares that to MRI T1 mapping. And so mm-hmm. a small paper, but I think something that really you know, highlights the potential of dual-energy CT in assessing myocardium compared to the goal. And then lastly is, I think, a paper that looks at transcatheter mitral valve implantation and tries to predict outcomes, particularly paravalvular leak, using image-based computational models, using CT. And so taking to your interventionalist and being able to model how that valve will fit and which valves will actually have paravalvular leak, I think it's a small study, but really a thought-provoking study. So I think a really great July, August issue of the JCCT.
0: As always, these are such high-quality papers and studies, and it's such an exciting time for all of us in cardiovascular CT Thank you so much, Todd, for introducing this issue, and we'll continue the conversation. So now I'd like to invite Dr. Todd Villines back, and this time to discuss the editor's page of the current issue of JCCT and a very important editorial here on coronary computed tomographic angiography and invasive coronary angiography, a re-evaluation. So this is a very interesting opinion paper. And Todd, welcome back. And, you know, let's discuss this very important viewpoint here.
1: Yeah. So this is our first editor's page within the JCCT. So this is going to be a, a new segment that m- it may appear in every issue. It may may not be in every issue. It really will depend on the purpose is really twofold. Number one, it's a, it's an opportunity for the editors to comment on some of the important research being published in that particular issue, as well as commenting on timely topics, somewhat controversial topics in just the field of cardiovascular CT. For example, if there are recent important publications, recent guideline changes, it's a real chance to hear from what I think is a really talented editorial board. And so it's a chance for hopefully each issue for us to, to, to talk about things that are pragmatic, important, or really relative to the field. And so this was our first editor's page, and it was led by Harvey Hecht. And, you know, Harvey is someone who has a, is very passionate about the use of cardiovascular CT CT and this came about from a discussion during one of our editorial calls. We went around and polled all the editors and said, "How do you use cardiac CT for example pre-taver? You know, what if someone has no coronary disease on their pre-taver CT are you still cathing those patients? What about valvular heart disease patients? Are you are you still cathing all these patients to rule out coronary disease? And if so, who are you cathing? Maybe not everybody. How are you using coronary CT in such patients?" And what we found is there was a lot of heterogeneity, even among sites with high degree of expertise using coronary CTA. And so it kind of sparked you know, Harvey to really lead this and, and write this first JCCT editor's page.
0: It's really very nicely written. And I think the very first paragraph has a, a question here that should become the focus of this uh, conversation, which is, have we now reached the point where CTA can be substituted for ICA or invasive coronary angiography? And if so, in what scenarios? So that is really the focus of this paper. So what do you think?
1: Well, I think there's a movement. I mean, and, and I think it's really being led by our interventionalists. It's not just CT, you know, CT angiographers, people do coronary CT like you and I, to appreciate the high accuracy of, of coronary CT. Now, obviously, there are patients who have extensive calcium burden, who have suboptimal image quality where the accuracy suffers. And so, you know the premise of this is assuming high-quality CTA, but I think yeah, I think we've seen that when you look at the accuracy of CTA for predicting abnormalities on invasive fractional flow reserve, it does as well as invasive angiography. And I think there's some scenarios where now we we should probably, as a field and across institutions, I think rely more heavily on coronary CT. And, and the first example we we discuss in the editorial is prior to TAVR, we're now doing TAVR in lower and lower risk populations. You know, historically, we were doing TAVR in the advanced elderly. Many of these patients had known coronary disease. These were not great patients to assess coronaries by CTA. And so it was kind of the standard that you just get a cath before you go get a TAVR. Well, now we're doing TAVRs in lower risk populations where that, that's not the case. And in fact, what we're realizing is that in systolic imaging, is highly accurate for assessing coronaries in a large proportion of patients. And that's uh, often, if not almost always, included in your systolic TAVR acquisitions. And so that's something now that I think we kind of, in this paper, kind of challenge folks to think about. Should we start ensuring that our TAVRs are done before the cath lab? And looking at those critically. And if you don't have high-risk coronary disease, you know, you don't have left main, proximal D, really or proximal segment disease, then maybe you don't need to go and have a, an invasive procedure, an expensive procedure, a procedure that while low risk has, has certainly some small risk to the patients, particularly patients who are going to be getting more contrast and other invasive procedures. And so I think that's something that there are now some studies out there showing that this can be done. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that, you know, we are doing here and many institutions are already doing. And uh, there's even some, you know, papers suggesting that this is a safe approach. So we just wanted to bring this to people's attention that, you know, think about doing this if you're not doing this already. Now, of course, if, you know, there's always the issue of giving nitroglycerin to patients who have aortic stenosis, And, you know, I think what we've realized is there's not good safety data yet to suggest you should do that. So these are interpreting CTAs without nitroglycerin. And so not everybody's going to have the coronary diameters at baseline to make that feasible. But when feasible, Mm -hmm. if you are doing the CT anyway, why not save them a cath in some of these patients?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then there are other situations, such as pre-valve surgery and post-cabbage. Those are other situations where... CTA could easily be substituted for CAT.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think a lot of folks are already using coronary CTA in kind of the lower to intermediate risk patients who are are felt clinically to be unlikely to have coronary disease. And I think, you know, many of our readers may not be aware that in fact, in the 2014 American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association valve guidelines, that in fact, coronary CTA is given a 2A recommendation for use, particularly in patients who are not Likely. To have significant coronary disease. And of course, you, if you find something on CT and you're not sure, you can always go to the cath lab. But most patients can be excluded. They can have significant coronary disease excluded with, with CT. And we know the value of CT with providing surgeons additional information. Many of these patients are already going to the CT lab to exclude significant aortic calcium. The, the value of CT for giving them anatomic information about whatever valve surgery they're going to may be additive to echocardiography. We think, that, you know, many Are simply not doing what's already in the guidelines, and that is to rule out high risk coronary disease with a CTA as opposed to taking, for example, a 50 year old woman with mitral valve prolapse who needs mitral valve repair. Many of these people are still around the world likely being sent to the cath lab when a CTA would, would suffice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you discussed early on, right in the beginning of this paper, is that now with the availability of CT-derived FFR, for instance, many of the situations that were previously not great for CTA, such as potentially uh, severe disease or intermediate disease or a lot of calcification, now it's no—it's not so much of a concern, and CTA still could be substituted for CAT. So, what would you say about that?
1: Well, I fully agree. You know that, <laughs> as you well know. We like telling people they have either no disease or near normal coronaries or they clearly have severe disease. We know how to manage those patients, but the intermediate stenosis leaves us all a little uncomfortable when you just have anatomy. And so you're exactly right. You know, now you say, well, okay, if I encounter that, I now have other tools, like you mentioned, CT-derived FFR, to then tell my clinicians, hey, we saw this 60% stenosis. And by the way, here's some reasonably accurate functional data that we can derive from CT to help them in decision-making, and again, to safely defer catheterization in a large percentage. Now, we still know that people are going to need to go to the cath lab, and some people are going to have disease on CTA that perhaps needs to be verified by invasive angiography. But I think using CTA, particularly today with the modern generation scanners, with CTFFR, and just our appreciation now of the high accuracy of CT, the prognostic value, that, you know, we should use our catheterization labs as interventional suites and less so as a diagnostic suite.
0: Absolutely. And um, this is already adopted in the ESC guidelines, the NICE guidelines, and so it isn't really in the sphere of speculation anymore, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it is. And I I just think it's it's interesting that old habits die slowly. And, And so often, despite the guideline recommendation to use CTA in a large percentage of patients, that we still see... Reflexive referrals to the cath lab in many situations where CT would work very well. Of course, you know, the more, I think, provocative use of CT was the question raised by the Syntax 3 Revolution study. Mm-hmm. And so this was a study that has surmised, although not formally tested, that perhaps you could use CTA in lieu of invasive angiography prior to bypass surgery. And so this is something that most surgeons and most centers around the world, no one's really doing this clinically. There's no great clinical trial to show it's safe other than some very small case series. But, you know, this is something that's now being proposed within mainstream multicenter international clinical trial list as something to consider, particularly when you can combine it with CT-derived FFR to make those revascularization decisions. So I, I think the, the the future is exciting in that area. Uh, not something currently being done, but certainly something being contemplated.
0: Yes, and I'm sure we'll see a lot more studies in, in the near future, actually, that will align with what Harvey and you propose in this really well-written editorial. Thank you so much for everything that you do.
1: Well, thank you so much, Kavita. And I just want to, just on behalf of the entire editorial board of the JCCT. And for all of the readers of the journal, thank you for Starting the JCCT podcast, the the Pulse, for doing such an amazing job each and every time, and for really all of your efforts in this area, we are going to miss you in this role. And for for those who are listening, this is unfortunately Kavita's last podcast. She is bigger and better things moving up in the SCCT and her numerous research teaching volunteer roles, leadership roles. And so, you know, this is uh, certainly a big loss for the journal, but we completely understand. And you have put us on a great path forward.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Todd. And it's an absolute honor and privilege to work with you and the entire amazingly talented editorial board of JCCT. And thank you for giving me this opportunity.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Kavita.
0: honored to be speaking next with Dr. Francesco Polari from the Department of Cardiac Surgery in Paracelsus Medical University in Clinicum Nuremberg in Nuremberg, Germany. And we are talking about this really interesting paper in the current issue of the Journal of Cardiovascular CT, which is Aortic valve calcification as a risk factor for major complications and reduced survival after transcatheter replacement. Welcome to JCCD Pulse,
2: Francesco. Thank you, Kavita. I'm deeply honored for this invitation and the opportunity to share my experience with other colleagues in uh, JCCT pools.
0: Yes, this paper of yours is very interesting and very clinically relevant, which is why it is such an important paper. Please tell us, you know, what the issue is with aortic valve calcification and TAVR.
2: Yeah, thanks. As you said, there is a lot of clinical implication in this article, Actually, I'm a cardiac surgeon, so you already said, and that was the uh, first step that moved me to write, so to investigate this issue and to write this article. Because as a surgeon, I performed the uh, TAVI, the transcatheter aortic valve implantation, together with the cardiologist, obviously, and we saw many complications that was depending uh, from the calcium load. And Mm -hmm. the main concept at the basis of this article and the others that generated from my research was if I had no, yes, if I had no, what could I do? I mean, uh, in relation to the calcium load, there was the possibility to customize the TAVI or so to modify the TAVI in order... To become a better outcome. Because we saw, but many, so all colleagues in the world who perform regularly TAVI, they know that the calcium load is a peculiarity characteristic of these patients, and many, many complications generate depending from this issue. But the big problem was how to quantify this calcium load. That, that was the, the big question, because we know the computer tomography has the potential to quantify is, this issue, but normally, so the gold standard for uh, assessment of calcium load was the Agathon uh, score. And the Agathon score is possible only on the native set, without contrast enhancement. But all Tavi patients becomes an computer tomography with contrast contrasenensate. That was the big problem. I was inspired from this, uh, from an article in uh, JCCT uh, from 2015 that was authored from Hanson. That was a very, very interesting paper that analyzed the correlation between the calcium load that was assessed in a way that I will explain uh, immediately. uh, Hanson assessed this uh, calcium load with a uh, very interesting and potentially deadly outcome that was the Arctic rupture. And uh, Mr. Hanson, Dr. Hanson proved Mm -hmm that the contrast-enhanced CT had a significant correlation with this outcome. That was, for me, of great inspiration. And not only this article, but also other colleagues around, mainly in Europe, I should say, but they had some uh, similar correlation with this calcium load assessment and many different outcomes. In this way, I thought that I could use uh, a very similar method to assess uh, this calcium load. This method is not perfect, and that must be clear. But the big problem is if I had used a Agaston score, I should give the patient the double exposure to radiation of the normal CT because for preparation of uh, of a tabby procedure every patient needs only the contrast enhanced ct and to perform an agoston score i should have give the patient the doppel of the radiation right that, that that was obviously not ethical right yes but i said there was already many previously obligations about the possibility to use another calcium load quantification I just tried, to be honest. I made uh, this retrospective analysis uh, of all our TAVI cohort and I, with the help of our statistical, Dr. Hitzler, mm-hmm. we found a very interesting, significant correlation with uh, outcomes.
0: Yeah, so that's very, very interesting. Let's talk about the association with outcomes because it wasn't really just the total calcium, but it's also the location of the calcification that was associated with specific outcomes, right?
2: Yeah, yes, it's right. I started from the beginning with the analysis of the not only of the calcium load, but also of the calcification because the first article of this series was about the paravalvular leakage and that was why i investigated also the spatial uh, location of the of the calcium load and after then there was another period where we investigated the correlation with the permanent pacemaker implantation. Mm -hmm. And in this case, uh, was the location of the calcification also of interest because we found in this other publication that the location of the um, calcium load was exactly in the point uh, where the um, atroventricular junction is located. Mm -hmm. And that was the reason because I analyzed the uh, location. That was very surprising that this location was correlated also with a stroke. I didn't expect it, uh, to be honest. But I had uh, analyzed this variable, also so debated for the localization. And in the statistical analysis, we found this correlation. That was very, very interesting. And another very interesting results of this article was that especially So not the calcification of the aortic valve, but the calcification of the LVOT, the left ventricular outflow tract, was the most relevant determinant for the 30-day mortality.
0: Yeah, this is really very important clinically. So... You had a long follow-up, right, of nearly five years, was it?
2: Yes, exactly.
0: So, you know, how applicable is this clinically for the average center doing, you know, cardiac CT prior to TAVR with regard to adoption of this technique to assess calcification?
2: Thank you very much for the question, because that was really the center of the history that, of, of my research. At the beginning, I thought that to analyze this variable in order to modify the TAVI procedure and to reduce the incidence of these complications. But the problem is that TAVI cannot be customized or in a very, very little proportion, I mean, we can adapt, we can regulate the grade of oversizing, for example, or the deep of implantation of the prosthesis, but there is not yet the possibility to improve the procedure. For this reason, and on the basis of this article that we discuss in this moment, we concluded that these results should be discussed in the heart team in the moment where uh, cardiologists and cardiac surgeons have to decide if specific patients need the TAVI or should be better uh, treated with the uh, surgical aortic valve replacement. It was for me very fascinating that in the preparation of this article were published the uh, guidelines of European society in uh, 2017 and was for me uh, very exciting to see that the big expert in this field had already formulated uh, about the same concept. Mm-hmm. If uh, you see in the actual guidelines uh, from ESC in 2017, uh, in the table seven, there was a detailed Recommendation to suggest uh, the TAVI or the surgical or the verbal replacement on the basis of the anatomical variable. And unfortunately, I believe uh, not so many colleagues. Uh, use this recommendation, because in the most of cases, the decision to choose one or the other procedure is on the basis of the age of the patient, other comorbidities. But maybe because I'm a surgeon, but I believe not only because of that, but also because of the results of this research, I believe we and the other colleagues should more taking consideration the anatomical variable in the process in the decision making process yes because this variable the anatomical variable have a significant influence on the outcome and i hope the results in my article could support this suggestion
0: yes i think your paper is really fascinating and really gives us this idea that we have so much to learn about this particular issue of uh, TAVR and aortic valve replacement and the non-invasive assessment of the valve and the entire association with outcomes I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously, you're the surgeon, but do you feel sometimes that there is a lot more that we need to figure out about this and it's not as simple as we originally thought it was?
2: (laughs) Yes, uh, I totally agree. There is a lot to learn yet about the procedures, but also about the the, technique, the possibility to apply the imaging to the patients, because there is, I believe that the technology allows us to get a lot of information. We, uh, in this, I believe that that in this moment uh, we, have the possibility to have access to a lot of information. We should uh, but interpreted these informations, analyzed, and uh, to use uh, in such a way that we could improve the outcome of the patient because the TAVI is a wonderful procedure, minimal invasive, but the complications rate is not lower at 1%. It's unfortunately at the same level of the of the surgery already yet. I believe only the low-risk trials, the last partner three trials, showed something, a superiority in comparison with the surgeon, with the surgical way, but the intermediate and high-risk trials showed a comparable uh, mortality in comparison with the surgical way. But, to conclude, I, I wanted to say that the cooperation with a cardiologist and a radiologist should be improved because we can see that uh, where, if these figures collaborate together, uh, normally, if this uh, happen, you can see also a significantly improvement in the in the quality of the of the work.
0: Absolutely. I encourage all of our listeners to read this paper in the current issue of JCCT. And thank you again, Francesco, for being here on the Pulse and for all the wonderful work you're doing in this area.
2: Thank you, Kavita, for this opportunity. And I will uh, hear about you in the future in the JCCT Pulse.
0: Yes, absolutely. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Now, I have the distinct honor of introducing and inviting Dr. Kuhn Neiman to JCCT Pulse. And we will be talking about the invited review that he wrote with one of his colleagues from Stanford University School of Medicine regarding dynamic CT myocardial perfusion imaging. Welcome, Kuhn, to JCCT Pulse.
3: Thank you, Kavita. Always a pleasure.
0: Yes. And before we begin, I just want to say congratulations on a wildly successful annual scientific meeting of the SECT. Congratulations, a huge congratulations from me and from all of our listeners on your appointment as the president of SECt this year.
3: Thank you, Gavita. I'll do my best. And uh, I have to say I'm relieved the meeting went uh, well with all the support of so many people. You know, I'm very happy people enjoy that.
0: Thanks. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Let's talk about, you know, dynamic CT myocardial perfusion imaging and how it differs from static perfusion imaging.
3: Hmm, sure. So dynamic perfusion imaging is a technique that has been around for a little bit longer which is possible on standard uh, CT scans where you acquire single data set like a CT angiogram during infusion of a vasodilator and where you will see differences in the enhancement of the myocardium that is dependent on the relative perfusion or blood flow through the myocardium during stress. So this method allows you to detect ischemia, but it doesn't allow you to really measure the blood flow through the myocardium. And it's also, it seems to be more sensitive to certain artifacts like beam hardening. So dynamic perfusion imaging, the difference there is that instead of just acquiring one single data set, you acquire a series of data sets over a period of time while the contrast medium is entering and exiting the myocardium. From this time attenuation curve, you can, um, using a modeling, you can actually calculate what the myocardial blood flow is in every small element within the myocardium. That is the, the fundamental difference between the two techniques.
0: Okay. So is there a difference in the technology that is required for dynamic MPICT?
3: Yeah, that's an important point. So while any cardiac CT scanner that can do a regular CT angiogram is potentially able to do static perfusion imaging. What you would need for dynamic perfusion imaging is a technique that can acquire the entire heart either in one, that's the ideal, or at least in two heartbeats. So it needs to be a wide detector system. And in addition to that, it also needs to have a high temporal resolution as well as some other features. But the coverage is the most important thing because if you want to acquire a series of scans, then you know those scans have to be able, you have to be able to acquire the data over a very short time. So with a complete coverage, you can get a complete data set every single heart cycle. And then when you use a, for instance, dual source CT scanner, you would acquire image every other beat So you get a complete data set every four heart cycles.
0: Okay. The concept and idea of getting both anatomical as well as hemodynamic information and functional information from a single study is really alluring. So what are the kinds of things that we need to be cognizant about regarding the technique with regard to you know, radiation dose and things mm, like that. Yeah. With perfusion imaging.
3: Exactly. As you said, the appealing thing is that you would get all these information in, in one examination, or at least in one session, even though they are two scans. So that's the appealing thing. Also potentially the, the ability to combine this anatomical information and functional information in a single image by, by merging the data. That is, of course, extremely appealing. Another thing that's that a potential advantage of CT perfusion imaging, in addition to the quantification of myocardial blood flow that many other techniques like nuclear imaging can do, is the fact that you get this very high-resolution perfusion data that exceeds, for instance, quantitative PET perfusion imaging, and you can acquire that information over the entire myocardium because, for instance, MRI usually only acquires three, maybe a few more, cross-sections With CT, you get this information at a spatial resolution of three millimeters throughout the myocardium. So those are, are, I think, clearly advantages. There are, of course, also disadvantages. Nothing comes for free. And perfusion imaging is associated, of course, with radiation exposure. If you do a static scan, it will usually be equivalent to what a regular CT angiogram will be. If you do dynamic perfusion imaging, we are now in the range coming from around 10 millisievert, and I think with, with newer technology, third generation dual source, but also certain whole body with complete coverage scanners that can do it for five millisieverts or less. So, so those is coming down, but of course it's still there and the contrast medium is also there. In addition to that, I think the, um, there are some differences in the way perfusion is imaged in the sense that the numbers, for instance, the myocardial blood flow numbers that we get with a CT scanner are a little bit lower than what we are used to with PET. And so it's about stress perfusion with PET is about three to four cc's per milliliter. And with CT, it's it's more around two. So it's it's a little bit lower because of certain technical reasons. So those would be the downsides.
0: I see yeah. So you've, you've spoken about PET a couple times now. So can we talk about, you know, the comparative kind of effectiveness of dynamic CT perfusion to other functional tests and also, you know, with regard to how it performs with regard to radiation dose and things like that?
3: Yeah, it's hard to say completely for sure how well different techniques perform compared to another because there have been no direct comparisons in the same patients. So uh, neither static nor dynamic uh, perfusion CT has been directly compared. Uh, There have been a number of meta-analyses that show that the results you get with perfusion uh, imaging using CT is within the same range as with other techniques. So it looks like it's not underperforming compared to other uh, techniques but of course until we have a direct comparison we can say for absolutely sure there have been some comparison to CTFFR these comparisons uh, show that both perform well i would say in most of the studies uh, with some exceptions both perform well and even have some incremental value so where you know the combination of information actually increased the uh, diagnostic value of both, but then of course the question is whether you would always want to do both of them, which would be expensive or, or potentially uh, result in excessive exposure that is not really helping. Mm-hmm. So, one of the approaches has been suggested is to do to first do the computational fluid dynamics, and only in cases where there are technical limitations to that, or where the results are in the gray zone. You would then do the CT perfusion imaging, but that has only been tested in in small cohorts, and uh, so we would have to look further into that whether that makes a lot of sense or not.
0: Yeah, yeah. In that approach, though, then we are even though technically just two scans, even with a you know even without the intervening CTFFR, in, in if we were to just do a dynamic CT perfusion study if we were to have the CTFFR in between, then it's much more spaced out, you know, between the CT and the perfusion CT. And in that case, I guess the argument could be if the accuracy is the same as other functional tests, then why not go with a stress echo, perhaps?
3: Yeah, no, that's true.
0: Right? Yeah. So I guess we need more data in figuring out where we can use each of these tests or the appropriate use of each of these modalities. But I was wondering if we could talk really about, you know, the prognostic value of CT perfusion.
3: Yeah. So I think what there have been a number of of cohorts, I think one larger cohort from Japan, as well as a smaller cohort, which I think was an international cohort, and what these uh, studies confirm is that uh, there is prognostic value in CT perfusion, just like there is prognostic value in other types of perfusion. Uh, but given these small cohorts, generally the prediction is, is in the in the prediction of revascularization procedures. I think it's very hard to, at this point, find a cohort that is large enough to really predict hard outcome like death or myocardial infarction.
0: Yeah. So, you know, you are one of the experts in this field that really understands the value of these different uh, modalities. So how would you recommend using all of these different CT-based techniques like calcium score or, you know, CT angiography or CT perfusion or CT-derived FFR? How do you use it in your clinical practice?
3: Yeah, that's the the, the one million dollar question, of course, and <laughs> struggling with, and perhaps sometimes even fighting about. But there are multiple ways to to do this, and my my personal preference gravitates towards CT. We've done this in one trial, actually two trials, but where we would have a stepwise approach, a tiered approach of performing first a calcium scan, and if those cal- if that calcium scan was normal and the patient was not felt to be at very high risk of coronary artery disease, we would defer further testing unless symptom didn't improve. Patients with positive calcium score, but not extremely high, we would do a CT angiogram. If that was normal, then again, we would uh, defer further testing. And then for the remaining patients, which in our case was about um, less than 25%, if I remember correctly, we would do a a, a CT perfusion scan. About half of those scans turned out to be abnormal. And and the vast majority of those patients that were abnormal were also felt during catheterization to have a class one indication for revascularization. So so the test was actually quite effective in triaging patients, but also limiting the, the intensity of the diagnostic testing to what we felt was you know what was minimally needed. Um, of course, this protocol was really focused on CT and, 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 and there are probably many different ways to, uh, to do this. Uh, you could have done the perfusion scan at the end. You could have done a stress echo or something else. But I think having some kind of tiered approach where you start with anatomy and you end with a functional test to improve your specificity and avoid
2: mm-hmm.
3: over-treatment, of lesions that, that may not benefit substantially, I think, in my opinion, it makes a lot of sense. You mentioned uh, CTFFR, and that would, of course, be an alternative where you can do a very similar approach that instead of a perfusion test, you would do your CT, uh, your heart flow, or other CTFFR uh, approach to, uh, to make those same decisions. But that's actually still needs to be tested and is actually being tested in trials.
0: Yeah. The tiered approach that you were mentioning, that was the Crescent trial? That was in stable angina, right? Not in acute chest pain.
3: Yeah, those were stable.
0: Yes. Right. And so do you have any upcoming trials uh, testing out (laughs) these various modalities and the tiered approach?
3: We haven't planned a Crescent 3 yet, but maybe that would be a good idea. But I know that there are several trials looking into this. So there's the PRECISE trial, uh, which is looking into a sort of tiered approach of first of non-invasive assessment of, of risk and, and uh, not testing in very low-risk patients, then do a CTA, and then in abnormal CTAs do, um, uh, do CTFFR. So that's one approach. I also know that there are several studies in the emergency department looking at the addition of CTFFR. And there have been studies also with perfusion imaging, even in patients with semi recent chest pain presentation. So there's actually a lot of research going on right now in this area, but I think we still need to wait for the results. I think all of these trials are still recruiting or at least analyzing.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating. And I have to say, you know, every time I talk with you, Kuhn, I um, learn something new. And I just love your really wise and thoughtful approach and applicability of anything to clinical practice. And I learned so much from you. So thank you so much.
3: It's always a pleasure, Kavita. And look forward to the next time.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you.
3: All right. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for joining us today on JCCT Pulse. Please make sure you subscribe to the show so that you will never miss an episode. If you would like to read the articles we discussed today, they are available online along with the full issue at Journal journalofcardiovascularct.com. And this link is provided in the show notes as well. SCCT members receive online access to JCCT as part of their membership. See you next time. Thank you for listening.